Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. So good day, everyone. This is Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's guest will be Mark Cristiano, the Commercial Director uh, for Global Business Services for Rockwell Automation. Mark spent the last 30 years in IT and enterprise and manufacturing systems leadership, uh, about 19 of which were spent with Rockwell Automation. And Rockwell's a global leader in industrial automation and employs about 25,000 people with customers in, I think, about 100 countries worldwide. Currently, uh, Mark leads the global commercial team that focuses on industrial IoT and cybersecurity programs and managed services development for Rockwell's Connected Services Growth Initiative with an emphasis on facilitating IT and OT convergence. Mark is able to leverage that 30 years of IT and OT experience to help bring companies into the 21st century and into the fourth industrial revolution as we as we know it today. So welcome to the show, Mark. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you, Steve. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's jump in. My first question, let's let's help me and my and our audience understand what uh what all this means. So take us on a journey through Rockwell's uh move into cybersecurity, kind of when it started, how and why it's uh, become the fastest business unit in terms of growth at Rockwell. Yeah, it's hard to believe, Steve, but um, Rockwell's the business that I lead, the networks and cybersecurity services business is now a decade old. It's been a, quite a journey. I guess the way we, we went to market initially was to solve a very specific issue with our customers. I used to say to customers, you know, the good news is every device you buy today has an Ethernet port on it. So you get to just plug it in and it works. It's, and it's time to value is realized. It's efficient. You know, all of my OT customers and engineers just love that plug and play features of, of Ethernet enabled shop floor devices. And then I turn around and say the bad news is every, every device you buy has an Ethernet port on it. And the reason being is because the, the networks in OT kind of grew up out of necessity rather than, you know, proactive planning like an IT network. And these engineers would just plug device after device into the network until they hit what I call the tipping point. They'd plug that one last device in, maybe an IP camera usually, and the entire network would go down. And obviously on the OT side, availability is absolutely essential. So that was a market, a market pain point that we addressed going uh, early on in the, in the go-to-market strategy for the business. We'd basically go in and help customers with network assessments and designs and then actually implement traffic segmentation following the CPWE uh, reference guide. And, you know, that that paid off very, very well. We helped our customers with improving the bandwidth and the stability of their networks. And we continue to deliver that today. You know, we also still deliver our, our virtualized compute platform that we'll talk a little bit about later, the industrial data center. And we talked about cybersecurity for the first five or six years of the business, and people listened, but we didn't see a whole lot of expenditure, right? And then in 2017, Nod Petya and WannaCry hit, and that got the attention of my largest customers. So a couple of them actually got severely impacted, and we mobilized to help them you know, recover, if you will, after those severe attacks. And it was in 2017, from a business perspective, that we completely pivoted to focus solely on cybersecurity. 
So at all of the investments that we've made in our portfolio expansion, in the acquisitions that we've made, have all been focused on expanding our cybersecurity services portfolio from a countermeasure perspective, from a services perspective, and then from a managed services perspective as well. So we continue to build out the cybersecurity portfolio. You know, we just recently stood up an OT-specific secure operations center at our Abnet facility in, in Israel. And that's really where we're headed. We're going to continue to develop and expand countermeasure deployment services for our customers. And more importantly, using those, those solutions as data sources to feed into our, our OT secure operations center. We, we are going to be the premier MSSP from an OT perspective for all of our customers globally that you talked about that are that are in a hundred that are in a hundred different countries globally. So that's kind of where we grew, how we grew up, where we're at today, and where we're going. That's great, thank you. The uh, you mentioned the NotPetya attack, and I ever since the uh, whatever you should, I guess we'll call it a war in Ukraine has begun, I've had to scratch my head over Putin's. Uh, strategy here and that uh from my point of view anyway all you had to do is continue to release these uh, viruses and sort of watch them take on minds of their own and see what happens kind of thing it's hard to believe that was five years ago given you know not only just the state of vulnerability in the ot sectors which you know we in my mind the chinese and the russians have exploited to demonstrate their cybersecurity superiority. And I'm referring to, you know, the oil and gas pipeline attack here. What that was a year ago, I guess. God, it seems like doesn't seem that quite that, that long ago. And uh JBS foods and so forth. We're also seeing these attacks. And it seems like the larger customers are now understanding the urgency and but most of these industrials are years behind. Why do you think that is? And why do you think it's hard for people to listen to this when it's happening right in front of their eyes? Yeah, you're right, Steve. We, you know, we are in many of the large global industrials and in food and beverage and CPG, uh, life sciences as well, maybe some heavy industries. And they have, the big ones have definitely, their awareness has been raised and they are actively pursuing and deploying comprehensive what we call cybersecurity programs, deploying these countermeasures that I alluded to and then leveraging third parties for managed services for, for OT-specific cybersecurity monitoring and whatnot. But you do point out something that we're seeing in the industry. It's the smaller guys. I think it's because they're overwhelmed, that they now are aware that they have to do something. They don't know where to start. That's the most common question that I get from the smaller industrials is, Mark, you know, we know we need to do something, but we absolutely have no idea where to start, right? So it's, it's just, a, it's, a, it's an educational exercise, right? The other dynamic that we're seeing is, you know, the, the elevation of the role of the CISO in organizations, which is a good thing. However, the majority, not all, but the majority of the CISOs that I talked to have come, have grown up in the IT space. And I've, in, in other, other media events that I've, I've participated in, I've always discussed the fact that the, the uniqueness the, the dynamic nature of the OT environment is something that's foreign to CISOs. So there's another educational aspect that we're going through with, with our community of CISOs. And I know you guys are doing it as well, right? So just to educate them on how different that environment is and the way that it needs to be approached from, you know, deploying 
cybersecurity countermeasures to help protect that OT environment. So that's a dynamic that we we at Rockwell, but you know, we've got CISO boards that we talk to. Our CISO Nicole is always talking to our other customer our customer CISOs to educate them on what we're doing as a because we're a manufacturing company as well, right? And she's leading the, the effort to, to deploy cybersecurity programs into all of our plants. So, you know, that, that CISO dynamic, I think, is getting better, but it's still there's still work to be done. You know, the other thing, Steve, is that, let's be honest, deploying cybersecurity slows things down, right? <laughs> and it's for a reason. I mean, you, you, passwords need to be entered, right? Credentials need to be checked. And when you look at the the philosophy of the, the shop floor, it's all about availability and uptime, right? Those two dynamics really cause friction a little bit in terms of having to bring a plant down to a micro segment, for example, or you know, any, anything that contributes to, to the loss of production is something that's, that's scrutinized. So I, I think that that dynamic in the OT environment is something that my customers are struggling with. And we do try to, we're very, you know, we're very, very sensitive to that. So think about maybe staging things ahead of time and then deploying very, very rapidly. So we, we, we take that into consideration in terms of that loss of production. And we always try to you know minimize that. If we go back to the larger companies, one of the struggles that we see with them, although they are embracing it, because they're in you know every continent and in many many different countries, and they've got plants in all these different countries, you know there's this this standardization desire that they have, but they don't necessarily have the ability to standardize and deploy in a standardized manner at the scale and the speed that they want to globally. And that's something again that we recognize, and that's one of our you know value props and differentiators. Is you know I always say to customers, we can probably run faster than you can, right? And that's all about the global scale that we have, and more importantly, that standardization that really contributes to day two support and lower TCO, right? If you've got that same solution in every single plant, then that that support really becomes a lot easier, and the total cost of ownership it gets driven down. So your message to me then is that that we're still dealing with the plant floor's reluctance or inability or however you want to put it to bring down a system long enough to upgrade it or apply patches or what have you on the OT side. It's a dynamic we have to deal with for sure, yes. I think the good news is they understand that they, they're going to have to take some pain and they're going to have to experience some loss of production in order to do this because think about the alternative. You do nothing. You drive without insurance, for example. And I can guarantee you that that small loss of production is going to pale in comparison to how much money you're going to have to spend if you get hit with ransomware, right? Yeah, sure. I was uh, about 114 years ago. I had the pleasure of running both uh, process automation and IT and operational technology for Memorex. And we had, I think, the largest uh, cassette capacity manufacturing facility in the world. And and uh, there was no question that, we, it, that conversation never even happened right beyond the first time about whether we're going to bring that plant down or whether we weren't going to bring that plant down. And of course, we never did. So I'm just sort of, I don't know, surprised that we haven't figured out a way to replicate that function or, you know, module in, in some modular fashion, move portions of that to uh, offsite facilities or what have you. But you're right. That's still uh, that's still the primary consideration. 
And I think OT providers like ourselves who understand that that criticality of availability are definitely approaching deployments a little bit differently, like I said, like maybe stage and cut over, you know, those those types of, of strategies to try to minimize that. I think that, look, I grew up in a shop floor as well. I was in IT for 15 years at two different manufacturing companies, so I have similar experiences to you. But I think when, you know, OT customers go to IT providers, they don't have that sense of urgency or, or that that knowledge of the of the criticality of uptime and you know that's a, again a, a differentiator that sometimes customers have had bad experiences with IT providers who just don't understand that right 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 touching uh, a little bit more on those last two points we've got new government mandates around uh, cybersecurity what can you explain what those are and if we have if that's actually going to have an impact on industrial clients yeah, absolutely. So, you know, post-colonial pipeline, JBS Foods, Oldsmar Water, you know, the government really has stepped up. You know, we're seeing CSER and DHS are implementing new reporting standards around incidences, specifically around critical infrastructure. Also, you know, minimum recommended security practices that, that critical infrastructure is going to have to implement. That's obviously getting the attention of our, you know, of our customers within critical infrastructure, and they're asking for help there, right? They, they need to mobilize, they need to get ready. And that really starts with assessing against some of the standards that the government's putting out. And that's something that we're leaning into pretty heavily to try to try to create and quantify that risk profile for our crit- critical infrastructure customers. So we're helping them with that. And then once you identify the risk profile, obviously we can help with the, with the remediation of the risk that we identify, but this is coming fast. And it's not going to be, it's, it's going to, con- to increase, not decrease by, by any stretch of the imagination. So I imagine there'll be more, right? You know, another one is, is uh, if you want to do business with DOD, there's a standard called CMMC. And those are just specific cybersecurity levels that if you don't adhere to that standard, you cannot do business with the DOD, right? So these are just, you know, three examples of what's com- coming down. You know, there's there's the, the there are other sub industries in critical infrastructure that have their own what I'll call you know boutique standards that are coming down as well. And again, I I, I see those not decreasing but continually e- increasing. And it goes back to the confusion that I talked about with just the not even a critical infrastructure customer, but you know the these customers that are under these mandates to adhere to these standards are they need help, right? They don't know. How to dig out from the hole that they're in today, and that's you know something that we, as I said, we, we're leaning into to help them. You know, the other thing is, and all all industrials are seeing the writing on the wall around regu- regulations. I, I said, you know, not just critical infrastructure, but what's been around forever, like HACCP in the food, you know, food industry, right? That's been around forever. It's not necessarily cybersecurity, but we're going to be seeing, you know, non, you know, electric and oil and gas and whatnot, other industries that that are going to be under government mandates to both deploy countermeasures as well as to enhance and, and decrease the time of incident reporting. So everyone's everyone's aware of it. And I think that the, there's an opportunity to, to really assist all of our customer base to try to get their arms around on the front ends about how to deal with these directives. Yeah, sure. And let's talk a little bit more about that point about clients driving around with no insurance. Uh, that you had mentioned as well here. And, uh, you know, you also indicated Zero Trust uh, sort of showed up after the Colonial and JBS and Oldsmar attacks. Um, Though, you know, it's been around for, what, 12, 
13 years now as a somebody's idealized standard, I guess, Forrester and Palo Alto Networks, uh, idealized standard for uh, strategy and architecture for building a uh, uh, non-excessive trust network. It's interesting to me then that the wherever the teeth are coming from and however the shop floor guys react to that, uh, as you say, there's a inevitability about government contracting and what you need to do in order to stay on that list or be on that list or continue to pursue your business. Is there sort of a generalized acceptance of regulatory pressure and, you know, what we're going to actually have to do here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the past, it was the old, you know, if I get hit, not when. So, com- you know, companies could, they were a little lax, right? They could kind of roll the dice. And cybersecurity was a lower priority and, and other things took took precedence and they, they were able to just get by. But look, at we see this every day now. Industrials are the highest hit sector, right, from a cybersecurity perspective. So clients are attacked constantly and relentlessly. And I think now they're all waking up that, you know, if you don't have that, like you just said, that insurance of putting those those protections in place, you're going to get hit. And the price to pay is millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And I allude back to that, well, I'm going to lose a half or I'm going to lose an hour of production. Well, how about you know seven hundred and fifty million dollars that that Merck got hit right back in seventeen or eighteen right? I mean that right. that is just colossal. And so I think you know we're seeing a general acceptance, and we're seeing a mindset of you know when not if anymore, right? So everyone's waking up, and you know that's quite frankly why you know our business is the fastest growing business in Rockwell, right? Is just because of the general acceptance and awareness in the market of of industrials that they have to do something. That's another thing is, you know, I, I talk about the confusion of customers and my, my, my advice is always do something. Don't try to put the perfect plan together, right? And because you'll never get started. Just get, get out there and start to do something. I think we'll talk a little bit about what some of those suggestions are later. But so, yeah, we're, we're just definitely seeing a general acceptance. And, you know, those costs that I, that I refer to, you know, downtime is the most obvious, right? But safety people can get killed when this stuff happens right so i mean yeah. this is that serious right yeah. uh, and then there's litigation you can get sued you can lose your ip i mean there's there's so many different facets of cost that that are at risk here by doing nothing at that you know as i said i think that the, the market's waking up and we're seeing you know quite a quite a significant uptake in in taking this seriously and starting to put programs together aimed at at combating this so I assume, I guess, that Department of Defense is going to be overseeing this, but I also noticed that we just fired up another agency within uh, the State Department, which is going to have a certain degree of oversight into, into these problems and the regulatory impact. So I guess the question is, what, what are the right protections? And, and I'm sure each client has some custom needs, but what are the minimums in terms of industrial protections that organizations need to have in place today? Yeah. So at, at the foundation, we advocate the, the NIST cybersecurity framework, right? Which advocates identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, right? That's every single conversation I have with customers starts with that to educate them on 
the phases of, of cybersecurity protection. I'm kind of old school, Steve, and I, I always advocate to my customers that they start with that network infrastructure segmentation, right? And I, I often get a little bit of pushback. That's not cybersecurity. And I say, it sure is. When you segment your network, the traffic only goes where it needs to go. And it allows you, should you get hit, to isolate very, very quickly. And then furthermore, I mean, the most obvious function of segmentation is to implement an industrial DMZ to separate that business network from the OT network and basically protect each other should there be a breach. I mean, I think we all, the majority of these, these ransomwares come in on the, on the IT network through email and then permeate down into OT because there's, there's, no, there's no DMZ to protect those, those two zones, right? So I start there. I mean, I, I, I always advocate to the customers that's kind of basic blocking and tackling. And then once that's done and your infrastructure is robust and segmented, Asset identification is absolutely essential. You can't protect what you can't see, right? And when you look at the industrial install base, that is a daunting task. They've got 20-year-old control systems. They've got different uh, disparate assets from different OEMs and vendors. And it's really, really important to get your arms around what you have installed there to, to identify what needs to be protected. And then it becomes a prioritization exercise, right? There's, there's critical processes that probably should take priority. When you start to deploy those types of countermeasures like 20, you know, threat detection, for example, whitelisting, endpoint protection, those are, those are what I continue to refer to as you know, deploying those active countermeasures, right? USB kiosks, things like that. Um, but given you know, the, the large disparate number of assets that are out there, it's really important that, our, that, that I, we work with our customers to actually prioritize which assets to protect and when. Some might not, not, might not even need it. Right, they're running this process that really doesn't, you know, add a lot of value or, or whatever it happens to be. But those, especially like in, in, in life sciences, there are some processes that if they go down because of the global supply chain, people can actually get sick or worse. Right. So it, it, I think that prioritization is, is really important. If we continue to, you know, re refer back to those disparate assets, patching is a huge challenge for for my customers. Right. And it's due to all the things I just talked about in terms of the age of the assets, the operating systems that are running on them, things like that. And yeah, that's something that we we certainly can help. And then if if we if we look at that continuum, you know, you have to assume, even though you're going to be taking countermeasures, that you will get hit someday. So incident response planning is really, really important. And that's something that we we just went to market with Dragos. We're now offering uh, insert insert response retainers and proactive cyber hygiene services with them. You know, best in class industrial knowledge from both both of us to, to bring that value to bring that protection to our customer base. And then recovery recovery services, right? You know, backups, just basic, you know, blocking and tackling, backups, re restoration planning. You know, anything that you can do to should you get hit to minimize minimize downtime. Is, is really important. And then look, there, there are other, I'll say, steps that can be taken. Vulnerability assessments, for example, right? Trick is trying to get a handle around what your risk profile looks like so that you can then formulate a comprehensive, probably multi-year plan to go after those risks. Security remote access with the with the pandemic became, you know, overnight absolutely required. And the complexity associated with secure remote access deployment and configuration and maintenance is something that shouldn't be underestimated because you got to think about it in terms of personas, right? You've got an employee, a knowledge worker who has one character, you know, has one set of characteristics. You've got shop floor people who are running production. 
you've got third-party OEMs that need to get in and see their see their equipment, but in a secure manner, right? So where we used to see secure remote access was kind of one size fits all. We we quickly over the past several years have, have really identified that need to be very, very granular in terms of personas and access credentials, logging, auditing, things like that. Endpoint management I, I alluded to as well. And then at the lower level, lower level two and below, you know, Rockwell has has uh, put a focus on what we call SIP security. We're the author of that. That's a generally adopted protocol that's used out at that control layer. So it's not just that high, you know, level three, at level two and up to three and a half. It's, you know, down at the control layer, there are specific countermeasures that can be taken as well. And I alluded earlier to that CPWE or the Converged Plant-Wide Ethernet Design Guide that we co-authored with Cisco that is basically anything that you can think about from a network infrastructure perspective or a cybersecurity protection perspective, there's a, a white paper on or, or a section of that in that document that addresses best practices from an OT perspective. It's about 800 pages, so I always tell people download it, but definitely don't print it. But it's basically the Bible of OT infrastructure and cybersecurity. So that's uh, interesting to me uh, because I've always thought that one of the challenges here is that we, while it's all good and well to say, you know, we we track telemetry at level two and above, you know, we're because we're partners with X, Y, and Z, and they do that for IT, the electromagnetic pulses that happen at the concrete level are not being tracked. And I, and that seems to me where the attack vector is going to occur. So I'm I was always curious about how, you know, whether you follow, you know, the zero trust approach or not, at some point, you know, you've got to monitor what's going on and and that whole 24-7 threat detection step needs to be in there. And you have to be able to capture those attack signals. And if you, as you say, if you if you don't, then you know, all the rest of it's sort of uh, you know boilerplate happy language because you're not going to get that those attack vectors that are that are happening at the physical level that's interesting you say that and i'm i'm interested if you've seen what i've seen lately but we're i'm starting to see a solution set that's aimed anomaly detection if you will that's aimed specifically at level two and below where they interrogate that electric signal between devices and have the ability, there's a couple of different immersion players that we've been talking to along those lines. I'm not sure if you guys have seen that same thing, but it seems to be gaining momentum in the market and awareness of the need to, to protect those lower layers. It needs to gain attention in the market. So happy to have a conversation about that at some other point here. But uh, what do you tell clients who, uh, who've got all this legacy equipment? I mean, my God, we haven't changed the thing in what, 50 years or something. That this stuff isn't easily patched. I mean, in fact, it wasn't even, I mean, much of it wasn't even designed to be patched. Older controllers, for example. What do you what do you tell clients about that? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's definitely 20, 30-year-old controllers that are still out there. And I think we have, you know, I always talk to to people the fact that when they were deployed, they were black boxes, right? There was no data that needed to go in and out of them. They were they were designed just to be just closed systems, right? And now with the, the need for digital transformation to even get data out of those legacy systems, they've been opened up. So there is a, a, a level of vulnerability there. I guess it's a challenging question, Steve. You know, I can't 
go tell a customer to upgrade their thousand control assets in one swoop, right? So that is one of the solutions is to upgrade to newer equipment, right? That has safety built, that has security built into it. It's not realistic, right? So there are a couple other things that we do talk to customers about specifically as it pertains to compute. That, that, from our perspective, that's probably the easiest one to mitigate, getting rid of, you know, X, XP and some of the different things. And it, our solution is the industrial data center, we call it, which is a virtualized solution. I, I strongly advocate to my customers to migrate all of their physical systems and, into a virtualized environment, whether it's ours or someone else's, that's fine. But what that does, it allows one a one-stop shop for either the customer or someone like ourselves, Rockwell, from a managed services perspective, to be able to patch consistently on a quarterly or a monthly basis, whatever it happens to be. But that really facilitates that patching, um, that patching process that really has to occur. But look, it, it's a it is a very complex challenge. You know, as I talk about the, the old control systems and I talk about the the old you know workstations that are out there as well. There is another emerging type of countermeasure, if you will, that it doesn't eliminate the need to patch, but it buys you time. And it's this notion of these whitelisting applications that are out there these days, right? They reside in memory. They basically, you can only run a set list of applications on them. And if something else tries to run it, it, it blocks it. So it, if you can conceptualize that, right? I mean, that does ease the burden or the timing associated with patching. I, I'll stop short of saying it doesn't eliminate it completely, but it certainly is a kind of a buffer that we're seeing as that market starts to emerge. Yeah, and I, is that, I assume you uh, offer that as a managed service as well? Yeah, so everything I just talked about is always like the industrial data center, we offer that stack and the deployment services, but then we'll remotely monitor that and administer it and patch it 24 7, 365 for customers, should they choose to take advantage of those services. And that, that's for our IDCs, as I said, but it's for basically if we put a network in, we'll do that same thing for firewalls and switches. And as I talked about, our enhanced secure operations center is a little, is the same, you know, the same mindset and paradigm, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. This is an administration going back to the Biden administration for a moment that has demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt that they have no problem spending money. There must be lots of uh, grants available to the companies that are that could take advantage of that out of the what the U.S. infrastructure bill from last year that had I think has a lot of funding in it. Talk to me about critical infrastructure and what could be supported through uh, through that kind of uh, funding. Yeah, so we we. Kind of talked a lot about it today, but yeah, so that's really a, a really important set of verticals that we really need to shore up as quickly as possible. Again, to actually protect human life. That's how, how serious this is, right? As well as, as we learned with Colonial Pipeline, you know, the production of critical goods and services. And I, I also, I, I always allude to life sciences, right? The criticality of that supply chain. You know, our opinion is organizations need now probably it's even a little late. They got to get in front of this to start to prepare plans for grant submissions, right? Because the money is out there. It's it's available. But it's the steps that you need to take to be able to show the U.S. government what you need and why you need it. That That's the challenge. And that's something that, uh, again, I've alluded to. We're leaning into that for our customers. We uh, just redid our entire website to provide free 
you know, quick assessments just to try to get some level of knowledge or visibility into how bad it, it may be within your organization. And we're continually, you know, working with you guys as well to, to add to those proactive self-service type uh, analysis that they can do. It, you know, it's not going to do everything for everyone, but it's great to, to give them a head start. And then we can come in and help them with those, those types of, like, as I said, risk and vulnerability assessments, starting to audit against these standards that we alluded to to help them for that what's going to be required to get those, those grants and help them with that, that submission process. And then look, zero trust, right? You know, we, we've alluded to it already. That, that's really gaining, as you know, quite a bit of publicity and, and momentum. I think we have a job to do in the industry, Steve, to educate people on what zero trust, trust is and, and what it isn't, right? Uh-huh. I, I, I feel like, you know, some of my customers think it's a single technology. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and it's not. It's, it's an approach. And by the way, it doesn't deviate that far from what we've done historically. It's just very much more overt, right? So, you know, we at Rockwell, we're, we subscribe to Zero Trust in our own facilities as we um, continue to build out that portfolio I talk about. You know, we're all about reducing that attack surface into that, as that prioritized protect surface, as we call it now, through, through Zero Trust, right? And then, you know, taking a look at, I, I talked about that network segmentation and access policies and, and really doubling down on that, right? And, and really taking a look at the current policies and maybe even making them more robust. So, you know, we're all in on that, but it's definitely a, a very solid framework. And to the U.S. government is all on board as well. I think we have a, a duty to educate the market on what it is and what it isn't though. Yeah, I agree 100%, of course, uh, and as you're, you're well aware of our activity in that regard, I had a thought that occurred to me as you were talking here that we, what we should do is grab, you know, your most influential CI customer, bring them to the U.S. infrastructure folks with an idea that we're going to build a small black box that we're going to stick on all of that critical infrastructure, and we're going to monitor and trap anomalistic behavior at level zero telemetry. And and we can even then refer to that as our zero trust uh, monitoring component and see if they'd like to fund that. And that becomes the industry standard. And golly, you know, if it uh, has RA on it, all the better. I like that idea, Steve. Great. We can work. We can work on that in the next half hour. All right. Listen, man, it was great having you here today. I'm conscious of the time. I know we got started a little bit late. I appreciate you taking the time out. I know your crazy busy schedule. And uh, so thank you. And I I hope that our audience uh, enjoyed this as well. I think we've, through discussion of these issues, have brought a lot of this to the surface that people, you know, just it's not an area that people, generally speaking, spend a lot of time thinking about. But but the next time they're stuck in a gas line in uh, North Carolina on a Tuesday afternoon, they may want to give that a little more thought. So um, Absolutely. Thank you for the time as well. I enjoyed spending time with you as always, Steve. Thanks a lot. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, uh, signing off. Thank you once again my, to uh, our audience for spending a, a little bit of time in the wacky world of cybersecurity. Take care.
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.